Hello, listeners, and welcome back to Black in Boston and Beyond, a podcast show of the Trotter Institute at UMass Boston. I'm Hetty V. Williams, your host. Today on Black in Boston and Beyond, we have Dr. Ben Railton, professor of English at Fitchburg State University and the author of several books, including his more recent of The I Sing, The Contested History of American Patriotism. Welcome to the show, Ben. Thank you so much, Eddie. It's really great to be chatting with you again. If anybody listening to this didn't get to hear our first conversation about about this book and these topics for the New Books Network podcast that Dr. Williams hosts, please seek that out. It's a great conversation, but I'm really excited to continue it and to connect it even more fully to the Trotter Center and Boston and some of these other topics. Yes, I think that's a good point, Ben. This show sort of has a a part one to it where I do get into more detailed conversation with Ben about of the I sing. And uh, we're going to go over a little bit of that because this whole notion of these sort of four iterations of American uh, patriotism, but we're really focusing on one, the critical patriotism as it relates to Black Boston and Black Bostonians. With the show, we obviously go beyond Boston at times, but this week we're returning to a discussion of Black critical patriotism and its connections to the Boston region. And we also have on our show allies, right, of the African-American community, Black community. And and Ben is one of those and really a true ally uh, to this uh, community in this conversation about critical patriotism. So Ben, tell us a little bit about your background and your, your, your Boston roots, which really you, your background, you come from outside of the region, right? But you, you fell in love with the area, right? I, I did for sure. And I've now lived in the Boston area the longest of anywhere in my life. So I'm sure Bostonians might disagree, but I would say I can call it home. It certainly has been a great home for me for, for um, almost 25 years now. But yeah, I grew up in Virginia, childhood in Virginia. So Obviously, some very different experiences of place and history and race and American identity, um, Charlottesville in particular, which has, of course, been so defining for some of those topics, a lot of them for the last decade in particular. And that really was the starting point for me with kind of all the things that I would quickly emphasize that I've continued to do and bring to the different parts of my career up here um, in New England, which include public education, product of very complicated Charlottesville public school system. And I've taught in, in public universities pretty much my whole career, including actually a year at UMass Boston as an adjunct before I, I started here at Fitchburg State, where I now have am starting my 19th year. So public education. And then I would also emphasize kind of interdisciplinarity, bringing together uh, not just English, but history and pop culture and cultural conversations and all those different kind of American studies, interdisciplinary studies approaches really started with that in Virginia, brought that to college up here in, in Boston. And then after grad school, returned to the area um, to, to adjunct and then start the job at Fitchburg State. So public education, interdisciplinary study, and for more than half my life now, the Boston area as well have all kind of intersected in the things I work on and care about and do. And I think the Trotter Center and UMass Boston, of course, as the, the public university in the city and as this wonderful interdisciplinary center for studying these questions really pulls those threads together, too. Thank you for representing UMass Boston, Always. Ben. Always. Good plug, right? It's a great place. I had a great year there. I really loved it. 
Yeah, it definitely is. And I think, like you said, the, the, the work of the Trotter Center is so important in why I wanted to start a podcast series in connection to the, to the Institute. And you raised this question of interdisciplinary studies. And I, I think one of the questions I have for you is about the value of humanities education. But your work is very interdisciplinary. Even this book is very much, I, I look at it as a work of intellectual and cultural history. And maybe talk to us a little bit about maybe the value of humanities education, but interdisciplinarity, maybe we could throw that in there too, because, you know, so much of your work is to me anyway, reading it very interdisciplinary. I appreciate it. And I'm I'm certainly always trying for that. And I think a big part of the reason is also very much an answer to the first part of your question, the crucial part about the value and the significance of studying and teaching and learning and reading and, and writing about and talking about, these humanities topics, which is just the, the multiple stakes in our communities and our lives. And the truth is, while, of course, higher ed is often organized in more like, you know, silos of departments and disciplines for good reason, the truth is that those things interconnect and they certainly interconnect in the way that they are a part of our lives, right? Whether it's, again, literature and cultural works or historical legacies and issues that remain in the present or economics and sociology or psychology and our identities and more, just the way in which all of these layers of, of, of who we are individually and collectively need to be studied and analyzed and thought about and written about. And I think when we teach and learn and write about and do this work, that's the ultimate stakes of it. There's Again, there's all kinds of specific questions for sure, but I think the real stakes are these are the questions of who we are and, and what we're about individually and at every level of community. And humanities, broadly speaking, and education in it is really crucial to having those conversations. And it's not the only space, but without that space, without those educational and classroom and institutional conversations and communities, we lose a lot in how we think about who we are, again, on every level. And so I just, I don't think anything could be more important. And I think the people who are attacking those things, of course, also agree, and they're attacking it because they know how important they are and how significant they are and are trying to limit those conversations and those spaces. So all the more reason why all of us who are such fans of them need to make sure we make that case, not just in education, but in every level of our society. No, I think you make a good point about the the far right, the extreme right, wanting to destroy higher education. I was just reading the the essay about new college and how so many professors have left something like 40% Mm -hmm. have Mm -hmm. walked away, not only left that college in particular, but have relocated outside of Florida because of the attack on higher education in that state. So it's, there are forces that do not want critical patriots that you talk about in your book as we turn more directly to it. Remind us of those four elements of American patriotism in your book of the I Sing. Give us a little bit of an explanation for folks who haven't listened to the first part of our conversation. Sure, I appreciate it. And I'll also just say, as I start to talk about it, and I'm sure this came up in that prior conversation, but I have an electronic copy of of the I Sing that I'm always really, really happy to send to folks who would be interested in continuing the conversation. So please, if anybody's interested, you can always email, you can always reach out and we'll keep talking about it. But yeah, so in that project, the starting point for me was a kind of growing realization that when we talk about patriotism, at least in America, 
we often sort of assume that there's this kind of one thing, this shared definition. And instead, I would argue there have always been in American history and identity, really multiple types, multiple things we mean that are that are not just multiple, but contested, that are that are often in conflict with each other. And really trying to expand on that and think about that and allow that to be a way to think about the term, but also to think about American history and identity, which that those debates open up, I think, really powerfully. So the one that I think we often mean, the shorthand kind of form when we say patriotism, is the one I call celebratory patriotism, which is you know, shared occasions and rituals, the singing of a national anthem, July 4th celebrations, pledging allegiance to a flag, these kind of celebratory rituals of celebrating an ideal vision of a, of a place, of a nation like the United States. And as I talk about in the book, I think there's value to those celebrations. If they can be inclusive, they can include all of us, but they can also really bleed into a second type, which I define as the most exclusionary and kind of discriminatory and and often very explicitly destructive form of patriotism, which I call mythic. And that's the type that both kind of relies on mythic versions of the United States, of our history, of our identity, very often white ones, if not white supremacist ones, and then defines anyone who disagrees as outside, outside of patriotism, outside of the US, not part of the we, um, if they don't subscribe to those mythic patriotic views. And so then the third and fourth types are ones that I would say are challenges to mythic patriotism, represent alternatives. One is just the idea of active patriotism, that we can continue to kind of push the nation towards our ideals together, that it's not simply about some assumed starting point, but that we can continue to do the work. That's what I would call active patriotism. But then the most important alternative to mythic patriotism is the kind I know we're going to talk about a little more today, critical patriotism, which is very much about the idea that in order to push the nation closer to its ideals, to truly celebrate the best of us, we have to recognize all the ways that we have fallen short and continue to, and to highlight those limits, those failures, those flaws, those struggles in order to then try to push us toward the more perfect union. So critique and patriotism as interconnected as a part of the process of embodying that that form. That's what I mean by critical patriotism. And at the heart of the book, really, I think, is that battle between mythic and critical, between those two forms as, I think, a defining conflict in American history and one that we see everywhere on our landscape, certainly including Boston and, and everywhere in our present moment as well. Yeah, I just interviewed somebody a couple of days ago who was talking about the fact that Bostonians or, or, you know, Boston, the city likes to sort of remind everybody of its revolutionary roots Mm -hmm. and continuously, obviously it's tied to tourism and getting people to come there and spend their money and see all these historic places. But when it comes to, I guess we we have this phrase of Americans like their history clean, Mm. right? We like this narrative to say, wasn't so, um, wasn't so great. Then it got better. And now it's, you know, the, the mythic story um, or how we tell our history in public spaces, I guess. But like unpack the critical patriotism some more for us. I know in your book, you do talk about um, African-Americans who also gravitate to the more mythic side or celebratory side as well. But talk to us about why prominent African-Americans, say like James Baldwin, that, that we'll talk about in a few are some of the more um, cogent, I guess, critical patriots. Like, Tell us some more about the, the critical patriotism and maybe some more examples. 
of that. Sure. And, and, and I'll start with Baldwin quickly. But yeah, so there's a Baldwin quote that's the epigraph of the book. And it's become maybe a little better known in recent years. I think it was under-remembered for a while, like maybe Baldwin himself. He could always stand to be better remembered. Um, such a uh, just a crucial voice for all of these kind of conversations about America. And he has a quote in his essay, Notes on a Native Son, one of his early ones from the 50s, where he says, and this is by memory, but I think I've got it exact. It's definitely close. It's the epigraph in the book. He says, I love America more than any other country in the world. And precisely for this reason, I insist on the something to critique her consistently. Um, I forget what the word is there. I insist on the right, maybe to critique her. The right, I think, yeah, I think it is. it's the right. And so, you know, that combination, again, it's not just the love and the criticism. It's that they are profoundly interconnected precisely for this reason, that you can't love without offering that critique, that it is vital to the love. And certainly he talked in, in a revised edition of Notes on a Native Son in the 1980s. He talked about that as this inheritance, this American inheritance that he's descended from, as we all are, but that had also excluded him. And that he's trying to recognize both the exclusion and yet the inheritance that he still absolutely claims a right to. And I do think African-American writers, thinkers, leaders, figures have been really great at recognizing that duality, saying we are fully part of this place and its inheritance and its ideals, yet we have been excluded from it so consistently. Um, and I think Baldwin was an example of thinking about those two layers that that demand then critique as well as the patriotic celebration of the ideals of the best of us. Another quick example, as we are recording on the 60th anniversary of the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom, is Martin Luther King Jr.'s speech at that march, which too often I think gets reduced to the things that feel more like maybe the the platitudes. But that speech begins by saying it's 100 years after the Emancipation Proclamation, and we have not made progress. We have not and able to move forward as we should have, it starts with really deep critique that then leads him into his push towards something better, his push for the more perfect union later in that speech. So I think that speech is a great example of critical patriotism, as I think King's work really consistently was. But then if I could circle back to the revolution, because as you had so nicely noted, that's such a part of Bostonian memory and the way that Boston thinks about its American role. There's a really great pair of African-American figures from the revolutionary period who embody sort of two different sides and, and, and one certainly a little more celebratory and maybe mythic. And then one, I would say, really critical. The celebratory one and, and at least a little bit mythic one at times, although I love her work and there's a great new biography of her that's worth checking out, is Phyllis Wheatley, the enslaved and then, and then free African-American poet, incredibly talented young writer and voice in the revolutionary era in Boston but one who really lends her voice to the support for the revolution in ways that can get a little mythic at times. She has this ode to George Washington that is quite sort of fully celebratory and even mythic in the way it thinks about Washington and freedom and American ideals, especially since, of course, he was a slave owner, a slaveholder at that moment. And so I think Wheatley's a really important revolutionary voice, and it's key to see her as part of that legacy, because too often, again, it's only, say, white Bostonians who are included, like the Adamses and so on. She's a key, a key Bostonian in that revolutionary era, making the case for the revolution in celebratory and maybe even in mythic ways, but it's really important to include her in that. But then if we take this a step further, one of the first revolutionary Americans, and, and known as such, the first casualty of the revolution, as he's often called, was Crispus Attucks, the first person killed at the Boston Massacre in 1770 on King Street here in Boston. 
But what I think is much less well-known about addicts, even to this day, as maybe we've started to get a little better sense, is that he was a fugitive slave. Um, he was born enslaved in uh, Framingham, Massachusetts, um, where obviously slavery was legal as it was everywhere in Massachusetts through the whole revolution. Um, born enslaved and escaped, uh, ran away from enslavement. His master sought his capture for the rest of his life. For 20 years, there were advertisements that his master, his owner, put in local papers seeking his recapture. But he remained free. He remained a fugitive, but free for the rest of his life, became a dock worker eventually, a, a ship hand in Boston, and found his way to that pivotal early revolutionary protest and moment that became known as the Boston Massacre. And we don't know a lot about what was inside Crispus Attucks's head, unfortunately, he passed away before he could tell his own story, for example. But I think it's crucial to think of him and that protest as connected to his status as a fugitive slave. And that's a really deeply critical patriotic idea that this is someone who reminds us of slavery in Massachusetts, of injustice, of racial discrimination and prejudice, as those advertisements in the papers remind us, and yet who becomes this defining figure of the early protest, the early revolution, the pushback on English oppression and tyranny and the start of, of the American Revolution as part of that. And so just opening up that side of addicts reminds us not only, again, of the layers of Boston and America, but of the vital role that Black Bostonians, Black New Englanders played at every level of that from the beginning. And so does Wheatley if we put them in conversation. So I think critical patriotism has a deep African-American legacy in our history. We see it so fully in 20th century figures, but we can take that as far back as we want. And somebody like addicts is a great example of it. Yeah, I think also um, Elizabeth Freeman, mm. we have to put in, and you know, also known mm -hmm. or referred to as Mom Bet, mm -hmm. as the first enslaved African American to file and win a freedom suit in Massachusetts, which lays the foundation for the gradual um, end to slavery in the, um, the new northern states that come out of the revolution. Mm -hmm. Like these are folks that may not be writing. Some of them are obviously writing things down, but may or may not be. But giving voice to freedom by walking into a courtroom and say, I am free, you know, um, give me my liberty from this institution that's wrong. Yeah. And, and Freeman and then another parallel enslaved uh, man in Massachusetts named Quack Walker, who, who shortly after Freeman also brings his case. One of the many reasons I love those cases so much, and you just articulated it really well, is is that it embodies the revolutionary ideals being applied by force, really, by these figures and their allies. They're saying, we are included. We are part. You want to profess freedom as a new American ideal? It has to extend to us. And that's very much the case that somebody like Freeman makes. She says when she approaches a local lawyer, Theodore Sedgwick, in the town Sheffield where she was enslaved, after having heard the Massachusetts Constitution read aloud, and the Massachusetts Constitution opens with the same language as the Declaration of Independence, all men are born free and equal. And Freeman says to Sedgwick, I heard, I heard that Constitution read aloud. Am I not a person? Am I not free as well? That's the start of, of her case, really. He takes her case and they pursue it, as you say, to its really incredibly vital conclusion. And just to think about then, that level of, of the kind of critical patriotism as well. I am being excluded, but I am going to fight for how much of these ideals and these laws do apply to me, do connect to me. That was Freeman's effort and and, and those of her allies and, and a peer like Clark Walker. And so that is an origin point for America too, right? The Boston Massacre is one, but these 
pushes for freedom are obviously another one. And again, you've got African-American Bostonians and New Englanders helping lead that charge. Yeah. And this is why I I like your discussion of critical patriotism and African-American experience, because talking about somebody like Crispus Attucks, who runs away and say, look, you're not going to have my labor in my body, but he's, he's taking a risk in terms of questioning, you know, the British measures and saying, it's hurting us. It's hurting all of us. I don't like it. Right. And then gets into the scuffle and it, you know, ends up in the street. And that was a risk for somebody who had run away from enslavement. He took this risk through this act of critical patriotism. Like you said, there's not too much we know about in terms of what he wrote down, but with his voice and with his body, I think the same thing with Freeman. And it it leads me to think about your notion of, um, it reminds me a little bit of rival geography too. This idea that, hey, I'm going to take my body away from this plantation. I'm going to run. I'm going to take a risk. But this is where I stand. And I'm going to be critical. I'm going to stand and die on my feet. Sounds like what addicts is really doing. But the movement of bodies and information, I heard this read, right? The movement of information and bodies and voice too. I just did an, just did an interview with Maurice uh, Wallace about his book, King's Vibrato and King's use of voice, uh, expressive voice to give really meaning to the black freedom struggle. And as a part of a larger soundtrack, like I said, your book is very interdisciplinary, but it gets into, I mean, on the cover, I have a copy of it right in front of me where you have these two African-American athletes who are doing something with their body to be critical. Hey, we're not going to stand, right? We're going to kneel. So let's talk about that a little bit more, how maybe the body and the voice play into these different iterations of um, patriotism. It's a phenomenal question and, and point. And again, a lot of these are things that I wasn't even fully consciously, at least including overtly in, in the book at the time. And I've continued to think about it in part, in large part, because of great conversations and follow-up thoughts like these. And so one thing I'm really just, just beginning to think about more, but that your question and your thoughts help me continue to, is that I think one of the reasons why we often settle on default versions of patriotism that are that can feel more like official or the existing story, the, the traditional story, is that those are maybe the ones that are more consistently able to be written down or able to be included in official commemorations like laws or placards that are posted on the landscape, which up until the last couple of decades anyway, were largely you know telling the, the wider histories and from that power structure. And so one of the reasons I love studying the history of patriotism through these multiple forms is it opens up all these other possibilities, right? That those more official, more whatever we want to call them, traditional, more written, et cetera, forms, which have included lots of different voices, of course, as well, but those aren't the only possibilities, right? That, yeah, movement is an expression of active patriotism and critical patriotism, or certainly can be, that giving voice in other ways, that creating other kinds of texts, other kinds of stories, even spaces, right? So to jump ahead a generation or so from Attucks and Wheatley, right? The development of the the black community in Beacon Hill in Boston, um, one of the most important early Republic American communities beginning in the early 1800s and all the way up through the Civil War, at least, and then after. But in that first half of the 19th century, let's say, just the building of that community is such an important step, is such an important 
way in which the members of that community, including some incredibly influential figures like David Walker and Mariah Stewart and others, express their identity and their American story and demand to be heard, demand to be a part of Boston and New England and America by building that community and all the work it does in education and activism. And so there's lots of ways in which we can express these these patriotisms and these ideas. And again, if we limit it to just things like the most official documents or the like, we leave out so many of those communities and those figures and those stories that really do define the breadth and I think often the best of these categories. No, I think that's well said. Absolutely. Um, we have to look. And I think, again, that speaks to your sources where you're pulling from so many different types of sources to be able to tell the story about many voices speaking at once, whether it's, you know, an essay, a law, a book, pulling from so many different sources to tell this important story is, I think, a, a great point for us to talk about. Music, too, because obviously the title, right, of The I Sing, and you talk a little bit about the title and the reason for selecting it. We can talk about lyrics and music as sources of our patriotism, be it, be it celebratory or or mythic or otherwise, right, critical. Yeah, and, and that song itself, the song that was first called America, I'm blanking on on the revised title of it, but the song that includes, you know, the phrase of the I sing, sweet land of liberty of the I sing, my country tis of thee. That's the, that's the revised title. Uh, it was first just called America, and then it became known as my country tis of thee. That song debuted in Boston um, at a, a prominent church, the Park Street Church in the 1830s. I talk about it in the intro of the book. And what I really love about the phrase of the I sing is precisely that idea that by singing, by performing we are expressing these di- you know, these p- possibly different forms of patriotism, depending, of course, on what the song is, what the expression is, and and how it gets used as well. Um, but just to think about things like music and performance and, and lyrics, the written versions, but maybe even more so the performances, the communal versions as as those expressions, as those ways of expressing our participation, our, our part of a community. And then again, to think about how that particularly can be connected to alternatives. And so to go back to the the 60s, as we were talking about with Baldwin and King and others, I talk about somebody like Nina Simone in the 60s chapter of the book with a song like Mississippi Goddamn, which is an incredibly critical song, but I think ultimately still about that idea of demanding to be heard and demanding to be to be a part of the community, despite the violence and the exclusion. There's a line in that song that I'm going to paraphrase where she says, basically, we are going to to gain our freedom. You have denied it to us in all these violent and oppressive ways, but we uh, that day is coming. We are going to to take that step. So I think yes, music performance, its lyrics, but maybe even more so, its performances are a really vital place. Again, maybe especially for communities that have at times been excluded from the more quote unquote, but for sure, the more official stories and and documents as they've often been constructed, then there have been all these other spaces that can offer those alternatives and those places for those expressions. And I think music has been a really important one. I'm very interested in sound studies. I've been interviewing a lot of people who are writing about the history of sound, right? Music and culture and, and freedom, really. In the last two people I interviewed actually wrote books about in that sort of genre of scholarly writing. And I'm so fascinated by it. I'm reading all these books about um, soundscapes of liberation was one of them with uh, Celeste Day Moore, which is a great book 
it's got me thinking about this is probably your next book, Ben. <laughs> the sound of patriotism. <laughs> I can see it. I want you to write it, Ben. I I, I really like the, the some of the singers that you mentioned, like Nina Simone. You could easily, I think, do uh, something with her just as a person who is embodying this critical patriotism, but tone and inflection, right? The sound of freedom and even black soldiers in the civil war who gave voice to freedom and liberty. That would be a pretty cool project, I think. You know, what are the anthems we remember, right? Whitney Houston, but that's celebratory, right? Because it's right after the, I think it's the first Gulf War, I guess, when she gives that big rendition of the national anthem. And then Marvin Gaye does something. I think his is more critical in interpretation, Mm -hmm. where hers is like more celebratory and mythic. Does that make sense? It does. It does. I would agree. And I think, again, what performance allows, and, and you're expressing it really well, is to recognize that there's not, again, there's not just one version, right? Sometimes we think about songs or anthems as just this kind of static thing but that instead it can be interpreted, performed in ways that lead to these different and even kind of competing expressions and and possibilities. And in that case, then, again, to circle back to something like Colin Kaepernick, who's on the cover of my book with a teammate, that there's other parts of the performance as well, right? Along with the singing and the performing, there's, there's, there's the body, there's the expressions, and that those all can be part of that range of possibilities of how something is performed and of how it is embodying differently these different these different patriotisms these different possibilities and i just would also say and and this is all of, of course a a project not yet begun but i appreciate the, the the idea for sure but i think i might connect it as well soundscapes and then again also kind of landscapes right like place embodiment and and just to circle back for one more second because we're talking black boston and you had mentioned the way that you know, sort of tourism in Boston and the revolution. And I just want to put in a plug for anybody who ever isn't already a Bostonian and visits Boston, or even maybe a lot of people who live in Boston maybe aren't as connected to it. There's the very famous Freedom Trail, the red painted line that, that goes through many of the Revolutionary War sites and, and others in Boston. It's a great, it's a great you know, tourist part of the landscape. But on the other side of Beacon Hill or on the other side of, of the Capitol building is the Black Heritage Trail. Um, which goes through the Beacon Hill neighborhood and traces many of those historic sites in Black Boston from the 1800s in the, in that Beacon Hill neighborhood, starting at the Robert Gouldshaw and 54th Massachusetts Memorial, right there on the common, and then leading through that that Black Heritage Trail in Beacon Hill. I think it's less well known than the Freedom Trail. I think it's a crucial complement but also like a critical patriotic compliment to the somewhat more celebratory and maybe even mythic side of the freedom trail. So how that landscape embodies something different. And so soundscapes, landscapes, these spaces for alternatives, these spaces for representing a Boston and America that, that maybe isn't, hasn't been always the official version or perhaps the more quote unquote mainstream version as it's been presented but that offer these alternatives. I think both landscapes and soundscapes can do that really powerfully. And we've got these great examples of it. No, I think that's great. It even can get us into sort of a discussion of museums and public memory as well, right? The landscape, the soundscape, but also, and reminds me of, a you know, get into a conversation about memory. It can go easily, I think, in a lot of different directions, uh, I remember a few years ago when I went to the National Civil Rights 
Museum in Memphis, there was a woman who was standing out there. Her name is Jackie Smith, African-American woman who's been protesting the museum since its inception. And she's written about in the Jonathan Scott Holloway book, uh, Race Memory. And I said, you know, I got to get out there and see if Jackie is still there because I couldn't believe it. I said, you know, when he's writing about it, I think she had been there like 10, 15 years every single day when it rained. She had tarp there and she's still protesting. So I said, let me go to this museum. I, I, I have to get out there. So it's like a few years ago, I went out there, went through the museum, walked out and I said, OK, is Jackie still here? And there she is. She's like, that's the James Earl Ray Museum. She had been living in the Lorraine Hotel and they removed her because it had become a hotel for um, folks who didn't have their own home, were living in low income people who were living in the hotel. But when the city decided that they were going to turn it into a museum, she was removed and she's being forcibly removed and they show her in the newspaper and she's been there every day protesting the museum. So she has her memory. Like for her, she's being critical of what has happened, right? And she said, you know, my memory of Martin Luther King, he would never have had us removed from this hotel because, you know, one of his last things was the Poor People's Campaign. So my memory of who this man was is not being celebrated appropriately in this museum. I mean, she's been there like 30 years. And that in and of itself is such a powerful, again, both active and critical expression. And that it also does connect just to central somebody like King is to these different possible ways that we that we remember and tell the story and these different forms that, you know, too often, I think the the phrase that has been used, I think, rightly sometimes is the sort of teddy bearification of a figure like King to link him almost entirely to the more celebratory narratives. And he should be included fully as, as so many figures um, should be who are not, who have not been in our history. But with that complexity and, and with that recognition of the layers of things like critical patriotism, and I personally am not as outraged by the Martin and Coretta King sculpture in Boston as some folks are. I think it's a beautiful sculpture called The Embrace, the one of their arms embracing. I think it's a, it's a great tribute to the two of them. And their partnership, uh, she too, Coretta Scott King, even more than her husband should be better remembered because he is to a degree and she really needs to be her activism. I love that they're both in that sculpture. But that sculpture does potentially lean so far into the sort of the side of love and celebration that it can be harder maybe to remember, for example, King's really deep critiques. And the Poor People's Campaign is a great example of that, as was you know, the reason he was in Memphis, the the speech on behalf of the sanitation worker strike and on behalf of labor activism, and which, of course, the March on Washington was about as well, you know, the economic um, critiques as well as the the racial ones of, of American hierarchies and oppressions. So just opening up, making sure we open up collective memory to include the kind of things that, that King was critiquing, that Smith, as you say, continues to critique every day to continue to open up space for that and allowing for these other versions rather than the celebratory kind and not just folding other histories into the celebrations, which I think has happened to a degree with somebody like King, but allowing for that that range of what it means to be patriotic, to be American, to be fighting for the best of us. No, I think that's a great point. M much of our memory of King is seen through the celebratory and or mythic lens. But 
the Black Freedom Trail, the, the Black Freedom Struggle runs through Boston and with these two figures who were there, Coretta and King, but also Malcolm X, you know, what, who lived in Boston for, for some time. And I'm preparing to interview one of his family members in a few days. So we could talk about Martin Luther King and Malcolm X coming through Boston, right? And its attachment to these eyes, ideas about liberty and freedom. Uh, we can place them there, you know, in the 1940s and 1950s and their formative years. And I would connect uh, Malcolm in particular to another figure I briefly mentioned, but just to circle back, because he's such a key part of that Black Beacon Hill neighborhood in the 19th century, if for far too short a time, because he died tragically young, as of course Malcolm X did with his assassination as well. And that's David Walker, um, one of my absolute favorite Americans um, and Bostonians. He was born in, in North Carolina, but lived pretty much his whole adult life short as it tragically was in Boston in that Beacon Hill neighborhood. His house is marked by a, a placard. He actually lived in the same house that Mariah Stewart later lived in, in Black Beacon Hill, which is a kind of amazing space for these multiple figures. But David Walker, the righteous anger of his voice and of his appeal on behalf of the colored citizens of America and the world, that amazing book that he publishes in the, in the late 1820s, self-publishes really, and then and then spreads widely. I think that is this, this amazing legacy that somebody like that uh, Malcolm eventually was very much a part of as well. And so to link, you know, the two of them as examples of, you know, young men in Boston who then become part of that legacy of that righteous, impassioned critique. And that leads even more into the fully critical side, but they both are trying to push. They're trying to push their communities, local, regional, national, push them toward that better version of themselves through the righteous, impassioned critique. And I think the Walker book is such a great early example of that in American history that everybody should read. It's short and, you know, I think it should be taught in all schools, but certainly here in Massachusetts and New England, David Walker should be a household name, I think, um, as, as helping originate that, that kind of legacy. That again, you then have so many other figures that extend, including somebody like Malcolm in the 20th century. So just thinking about that kind of through line as well. That's, I think, that's an excellent example of so many. I mean, we didn't even talk about Ryan Stewart. There's just so many Black American critical patriots in, you know, not only a revolutionary era, but all throughout American history, through abolitionism down to the Black freedom struggle of the 20th century and, and now at the present, you know, with, you know, you got a reparations movement right now mm -hmm. in um, Boston. So it, it just continues. So as we wrap things up here, Ben, tell us what's next for you. And we, we know you've got these two books, right? You're going to get the soundscapes, <laughs> one book soundscapes, the other one landscapes of, of patriotism. You're going to keep me busy, but there's always, there's always more good work to do. You know, right now, again, starting a new school year, part of it for me continues to be the fight that we started talking about today, the fight for public education, for higher education, for for our 21st century communities, including those in, in a variety of ways. And so I'm really committed to, to trying to be part of them here in Boston and New England and in America and, and love staying connected to those multiple levels, whether it's public ed, higher ed, these kind of interdisciplinary conversations, the work of places like UMB and, and the Trotter Center, just staying connected to them is, is always to me a part of what's next. And that happens these days online at times, but it certainly happens in all other kinds of community and conversation. 
And then in terms of work, yeah, just continuing to find those kind of interdisciplinary stories and histories that open up, I would say to put it kind of succinctly, open up the the hardest and the best of us, often, if not always at, at the same time. That's what really most interests me, I guess, is trying to find those pivot points where we can force ourselves to look at the toughest stuff um, and find these incredibly inspiring figures and histories and stories like all the ones we've talked about today who can kind of keep pushing us toward the best. So to me, that's, that's, that's what I'm most excited to keep thinking about and working on. And, and every, every example I can think of of projects and work, I would say connects ultimately to that duality, to the hardest and, and the best of our history and of our continued struggles as, as we try to learn from them and keep moving forward. Well, thank you, Ben, for coming on today on uh, Black in Boston, Black in Boston and beyond. Uh, I know you, you're you a busy man. You got a column that you do weekly and your, your American study, your blog, which I love. So everybody certainly look Ben up and his work. And uh, on that blog, just FYI, everybody, Dr. Williams has a couple great guest posts as well. Thank you, Ben.